Good to see everyone this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the sunshine today. I'm grateful for some sun. It's beautiful. Yeah, let's thank you, Jesus. Thank you so much, Lord, for the sunshine. Uh, Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Let's jump in there. Also, I haven't had a chance to meet you before. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here at Emmaus, and I'm excited to be teaching the scriptures today. You guys excited about the the scriptures? That's what I'm talking about, yes. All the Reformed folks in here got excited. (laughs) Open that Bible up. (laughs) Yes. Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. 46 through 50 is where we're going to be at this morning. And as we approach the scriptures, I just want to remind us that we don't simply read for knowledge, but we read for encounter. And we read for transformation. I don't want a bunch of Bible scholars. I want people to know Jesus and to follow Jesus. But you have to know about Jesus to know Jesus. So I will say that. But Matthew chapter 12, verse 46 through 50. Here we go. You ready? Great. Three of you. Let's do it. As Jesus was speaking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Someone told Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside and they want to speak to you. Jesus asked, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he pointed to his disciples and said, look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Holy Spirit, would you begin speaking now? Or would you continue speaking and just open our ears to hear this morning? Open us up to receive what it is that you have to say to us today. We are grateful for life. We are grateful for the ordinary things. We are grateful for the small things in our life. We are grateful for this community, this family. I'm grateful that your presence is here. Would we have an encounter with you today that changes us? In our gratitude and thanksgiving and worship, would you form us to look more like your son, Jesus? We give you all the honor and the glory and the power. We proclaim in Jesus' name, everyone said. Amen. Amen. Let me get a sip of coffee before we start. In 2017, the former U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murphy 
called loneliness a public health epidemic. We live, as some of you may know, and maybe are experiencing even today, in a time where loneliness is utterly wreaking havoc on our lives, mentally, emotionally, and socially. Relationships are fragmenting and breaking down. Interpersonal communication skills are lacking. Emotional intelligence is also on the decline, and the title friend has been confined to the digital presence of someone liking a photo of you sipping a latte, reading a book, or doing a random photo shoot in a field somewhere. And I can say I can check off at least a couple of those boxes myself. You choose which you think is me. <laughs> Some of you are going to stalk my social media this afternoon and go and look. Various studies in our time have shown us that loneliness can now be linked to reduced quality of sleep, creativity, the ability to reason, work productivity, anxiety, depression, cardiovascular disease, and even, check this out, premature death. According to the research of Julianne Holt Lundstad, a professor of psychology and neuroscience, the heightened risk of mortality from loneliness equals that of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Half of Americans either feel alone or left out. That means that in this room, half of you feel a sense of being alone or left out. 25% of people say they have no one to confide in. Zero confidants. One in four people. And Gen Z happens to be the loneliest generation in American history. Funny enough, this all has run parallel with the rise of narcissism. In essence, in our time, we are lonelier than ever before and more self-absorbed than ever before. It seems to me, though, that both of these symptoms are correlated byproducts of a few things. Digital distraction, political tribalism, consumer culture, and the Western ideal of expressive or rugged individualism. Marked by the pop slogans of you do you or do what makes you happy. You happens to take center stage in our time, which means that your life in that narrative rises and falls on you. And when the world revolves around you, the weight of the world tends to fall on you as well. A weight that seems to only produce 
fatigue, lack of meaning, confusion, unstable identities, and systemic anxiety. The Canadian psychologist David Benner says this. He says, the self is too small, partial, and vulnerable to withstand the assaults of life alone. It was never meant to do so. It was meant to exist within a web of interdependence that provides substance and belonging. Howard Thurman said, men, all men belong to each other. And he who shuts himself away diminishes himself. And he who shuts another away from him destroys himself. I don't know where you are today. I know you're here physically. Your body is here. But mentally and emotionally and in your spirit, I don't know how some of these symptoms of our society speak to you. Maybe you are feeling a sense of loneliness where you're in a crowd and you don't feel a sense of connection like you should. But I do get the sense that there are a handful of people today, whether you're new or you've been a part of our community for a while, that loneliness is an appropriate description of your current life. I also think that there are some of you who are actually married and you feel as lonely as ever before. And I think that it's safe to say We need each other. We desperately need each other. We need one another. Biologically, anthropologically, sociologically, psychologically, and spiritually. You need the person beside of you. I need you. You need me. We need each other. But do we know how to do life together? Do we know how to live together? Quite honestly, some of us do and some of us don't. Today we are launching our Lenten teaching series entitled One Another, where we are going to explore various commands or marks of actual life together seen in the New Testament of the Scriptures, in the life of the early church. Now, what's crazy is that in the first century, the church exploded without social media, without YouTube, without TikTok or Instagram, without influencers. It exploded primarily through a compelling alternative way of life in community. In fact, this was all Jesus left us. He left a community. I've said it before. He didn't leave a book. He left a community. A community wrote books. But what he left us was a meal and a people. And that was it. The church was a potent alternative community. 
and how we live together, friends and family, is meant to be our greatest evangelism tool to the world. The compelling nature of the early church made the cost worth it. The compelling social fabric of the first century church was so compelling that it made the cost of literally giving up your life worth it. Think about that. And we live in an age aching for belonging, being known, deep community, and connection. And if we want to see the world recognize the face of Jesus, we must learn how to live together. We've got to learn how to flourish together. We need practical interpersonal skills modeled by the life of the early Jesus followers. Now, throughout the New Testament, there are some where around 60 one another's sprinkled throughout. On top of that, though, what we tend to do when we read the scriptures, even though we see one another everywhere, is we actually tend to import our notion of individualism into the text. In fact, some argue that all of us having one of these has actually heightened individualism. But the early Christians, along with, by the way, most of the majority world today, was and is collectivistic rather than individualistic. Meaning, my sense of self was defined in connection to the larger whole rather than apart from it. Rather than apart from it. And our bent is to read the Bible, read the scriptures from a me-centered lens rather than a we-centered lens. And this is where, if we're honest, English translations have messed us up. Our literal language has messed us up. Because most often the word you in the scriptures is actually in the plural form rather than in the singular form. But we read it as the singular form. The quintessential example is Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, give you hope, give you a future. And you're like, that's my life verse, man. That's for me. And I'm like, that ain't for you. <laughs> that's for a people in exile who have seven more decades to go. That's not for you. And if you want it to be for you, welcome to exile. <laughs> You is primarily, thank you, John. I appreciate that. That sympathy laugh. That's awesome. <laughs> you is most often in the scriptures in the plural form. And here's what's interesting. You don't see that in the Spanish Bible. Because there's a clear delineation between the singular form of you and the plural form of you. You have two and ustedes. Separate delineation. 
Listen to this from Justo Gonzalez, who is a New Testament scholar. I, I found this so intriguing. He says, the error of reading the Bible in purely individualistic terms is much easier for those who read the Bible in English than for those who read it in Spanish. However, because many who taught us to read the Bible read it in English, sometimes they brought to us jointly with the biblical message an individualism that is not part of it. And guess where the gospel right now is taking the deepest root? Collectivistic countries. And guess where it is in rapid decline? hyper-individualistic, and by the way, imperial and colonial nations. And why is this? Why might that be the case? I believe it's because individualism is antithetical to the gospel and story of God. Christianity is not a Western religion. It is an Eastern religion. It is not a Eurocentric religion. It was born out of first century Judaism, number one, and out of Palestine and the Middle East. It is primarily a collectivistic religion and vision, and it is flourishing in collectivistic countries across the world and parts of the world, whether it's in Latin America, in Africa, or in Eastern Asia, as well as in places in the Middle East. Our fundamental anthropology as humans is communal. And, by the way, God's fundamental nature and essence is communal. Now, we have to be distinct and differentiated. I'm not advocating for some sort of odd enmeshment, okay? You have to follow Jesus. You do, as we do, together. You have decisions you have to make. But there are things that we collectively have to do as we bind ourselves together. We are distinct and differentiated, but we are connected and communal. We were designed from the beginning of time to reflect the harmony, oneness, and togetherness of the Trinitarian community of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God himself is a community. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Larry Crabb, who's a famous therapist and counselor, a believer as well, who actually passed away a year ago, in his book, Reconnecting, or Connecting, excuse me, he says this. He says, we were designed to connect with others. Connecting is life. Loneliness is the ultimate horror in connecting with God, we gain life. In connecting with others, we nourish and experience that life as we freely share it. Rugged individualism, proud independence, and chosen isolation violate the nature of our existence as much as trying to breathe underwater. And would you not know that Jesus himself incarnates and comes through a physical family lineage as a means of establishing, in the language of Ephesians, one new humanity, enabling adoption. That's the language of the New Testament, adoption into the greater family of God. God always chose families 
and God always establishes families, and he is simply establishing one new family wrapped up in and led by the person of Jesus, coming through an ethnic lineage. And in Matthew chapter 12, as we just read together, a few verses, Jesus establishes who his primary family is. The ones who do the will of the Father. And we see in this moment that Jesus didn't just come as a revolutionary or a political figure or even just a great teacher, but one who was actually drawing the line in the sand of who was his family and who wasn't. Now keep in mind, a first century Jew was defined by who their family was. Their whole life was set before them by way of their family. Blood was rather thick in the first century. In fact, your sibling was of higher value than your spouse if you were married. Why? Blood, family. Yet, Jesus makes the claim that my true family, that my people, my household are the ones who do the will of the Father, the ones who walk in obedience with the Father, the ones who are my disciples, the ones who follow my commands. That is my family. Jesus is saying, these disciples of mine are, of course, my friends, sure. Yes, they are companions. Yes, they are co-workers. But ultimately, they are my family. They are my family. And all throughout the 27 New Testament books, the primary reference to other Christians and other believers is of brother and sister. All throughout. And we see this constant reminder for us of how we are to live with one another. All threaded throughout. Brothers and sisters. And we see constant reminders of how we are to do life together. Marks of living, of being a community, of loving, as we will see, one another. Now, the phrase one another is actually one word in the Greek language, and it is the word elelon, elelon, I believe. I might be missing pronouncing that. I'm not, you know, Greek, so bear with me here. Alelon is the Greek word for one another, and it appears multiple times, dozens of times in the New Testament, and it gives off this notion, this idea of, check this out, mutuality and reciprocity. Mutuality and reciprocity. It is a reciprocal plural pronoun, okay? Meaning... That for a family to function, it requires for us a joint effort. Not just me, not just you, but both of us. If one does the action, but the other doesn't, you don't have a one another. It will result in a disjointedness. I think back to field day, where 
the blue team won the championship. But one of the races that we did or activities that we did was a a three-legged race bound to another person. And here's how that works. If you've never done one before, you both got to be exerting action at the same time. You've got to be moving in sync together. If one doesn't, the other does, you're going to have someone on the ground. And you're not going to win. Point blank, period. We see the same kind of idea. Two people bound together with a little rope or something, but in this sense, bound by blood. But not physical, biological blood, but the poured out blood of Jesus on the cross, functioning as a binding agent of persons. This is what binds us. It isn't our musical preferences or our interests or our hobbies or the activities that we enjoy. It is the blood of Jesus. You are here today in some capacity because of the blood of Jesus, whether you know it or not. And because of his blood, we are bound together. Family requires working together, joint effort, and teamwork. If you aren't working, and I'm not working, then we're not seeing family produced. What we end up seeing often, and we'll get to this in a bit, is what looks more like a membership to a gym. Where you can dip out at any moment and the cost is relatively low. So what does this actually mean for us when we're talking about marks of living in life together and being a family and being a community and joint effort and teamwork? First and foremost, to be family requires mutual responsibility. Mutual responsibility. Individualism is anchored in the rights of an individual. But collectivism is anchored in responsibility to one another. Here we see a contrast. Now keep in mind, the waters that we swim in are individualistic. You have been, whether you know it or not, discipled by a culture. I've been discipled by a culture that is elevating the individual over the group, primarily. So we have a lot of counter-formation that needs to happen if we're going to see family actually produced. Now, notice the language we are primarily focusing on is not necessarily community, but family. And that's because Jesus didn't come to just establish a community, which is kind of a general term, but a certain type of community. And family is the type of community. We see that threaded throughout the entire narrative of the scriptures from Genesis all the way to Revelation. So we will use community and family interchangeably in the teaching, but I want us to distinguish the type of community ahead of time. Now, let me just say this. Let me preface this. We are going to, I'm going to say 
some very hard things in this teaching series. If your toes get stepped on, it's okay. If you want to step on my toes, that's also okay. But there are things that I feel like we need to address as a community in order for us to go even deeper together. So do I get everyone's permission to move forward from this point? I can keep it soft and fluffy and tell cool stories, make culturally relevant jokes, you know, give you three steps to a better life. We can do that. Or we can hopefully move together and journey together towards something deeper, more beautiful, and more holistic. Is that okay? All right, cool. Just know that you said it, all right? It is on you, not me. All right. So quickly, five things I want to share with you that family is not, okay? Five things that family is not. This is very pragmatic today, very practical, okay? The first thing is that I want you to know family isn't easy. Very simple. Sometimes we show up to these communities, church communities, and we just assume it's all going to be easy. Well, it was until you walked in the door, right? Like, you like people, when you want it easy, like you're probably the one that's going to make it hard. It's, it's not easy, man. What we do and are and are after is not easy, okay? People are people. I love when people say things like, yeah, I'm looking for a new job. Cool, what do you want to do? Well, I love working with people. I'm like, you ever work with people? <laughs> Bro, people are hard. People are hard. I heard one pastor say, he said, I love the ministry, don't like the people. And I was like, that's pretty good. Hard stuff comes up when you're family. Hard stuff comes up. And if it's not coming up, you're probably not close enough. I've been around enough of you guys to realize some of you guys have been spending some time together because there's some hard stuff coming up. That's how I know there's intimacy. That's how I know there's connection. Family isn't easy. The second thing is that family isn't found. Family isn't found. It is created. It's created. Sometimes we hear people say things like, oh, I found my people. No, you didn't, bro. You chose them. You just liked what you saw. You were attracted, but you chose them as your people. And here's the deal. Here's where some of the just honesty is coming out. If you don't get connected to a house church, you probably won't find community here, period. In our community, something I've learned, people who don't stick don't get connected to house church. If you don't get connected to house church, you probably won't stick, just being honest. It has to be created. One another is reciprocity, mutuality. It's not gonna come to you. We will do the best we can but we have to also put in the work ourselves. Family isn't found. It doesn't just happen overnight. It is created and it's hard. Third thing is that family isn't a social club. Let me provide some clarity. Family doesn't always equal friendship. You may not have the same interests of people in your house church always. That's okay. Why is that okay? Because it's not just a social club. We don't just get together because we like the same kind of music or we like the same kind of food or we all like to go hiking 
or we like to go to the same places to shop, you know? Like, and I get, we got some fashionable people up in this piece. Like, I'll go shopping with you. That's cool, right? But not all of us have the same interests. But family's not built on common interests. It's built on a common bond that binds us. It's beyond our interest. Family isn't friendship. If you're primarily looking for friendship, you're going to hit a wall at some point because family isn't a social club. Social clubs have low buy-in. Low. Pay your fee, do your thing, get out. Low buy-in. Family is very difficult. Here's the next thing. Family isn't everything. Jesus is. Jesus is everything. My hope for us is if today you're like, I'm really just searching for some community. I want to help you go, okay, let's, let's think about that. That's going to be a struggle, first of all, if you're just searching for that. Like, what you're actually searching for is a secure attachment, okay? And what you need is Jesus. And at the center of our community is Jesus. So if you can go after him together, we can do it. Let's do it. But if you're primarily looking for community to save you, you're going to be let down. And we all have a messianic complex. We want a Messiah. But family isn't everything. Jesus is, okay? Here's the last thing. Family isn't centered on me. Family isn't centered on me. Families that are centered on primarily one person probably are emotionally regressed and need some therapy, if we're honest. Family isn't centered on me. Here's another thing. Preference-based participation will always have you searching for the next thing. I don't really like it anymore. Okay, you can totally go somewhere else, plug in, but in six months, let's talk. The same stuff's going to come up. It will. Family isn't centered on me. It's it's amazing how life-giving it can be to say, you know what? It's not all about me. (laughs) It's pretty liberating. Five things a family is not. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said in his book, Life Together, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. You want community? Love some people around you. Invite them to a meal. Invite them to coffee or go on a walk, whatever it is. Now, there are two temptations for us in community. All right? Here we go. We're going to keep getting into the waters a little bit. All right? Two temptations. Here's the first temptation for us. The first temptation is to say, and I kind of referenced it a second ago, save me. Here's a temptation. Save me or fix me. I'm here because I need fixed. I'm here. I need you to save me. And this produces passivity and no responsibility. Over these next few weeks, I am going to, along with, by the way, Paula Armfield's teaching in a couple weeks. Hello. Come on. And what's cool about Paula teaching is that Paula grew up in Colombia, which is one of the most collectivistic nations in the world. Okay? Seriously, it's pretty cool. Like, we're going to step on toes and push responsibility, okay? So, passivity is the first temptation, or save me. The second is this notion of, I got it. I've got it. I've got it. Keeping arm's distance. 
what this ends up producing is arrogance and a sense of no accountability. I don't think we do good at accountability at Emmaus. We don't handle it well. It's good when it's good, but the very moment that there is conflict or someone calls out something in yourself or in another, our easiest option is to go like this. Deuces, bro. Is that the vision that we see in the New Testament? Show me. Show me. I don't think it is. We need more accountability in this community. Two temptations. Save me, and I've got it. One produces passivity, where there's no responsibility, and one produces an arrogance, where there's no accountability. Now, scanning the narrative of Jesus and his disciples as he was establishing this new community and family, I was able to see five stages of building a healthy community, five stages across the gospel story. And I want to walk with you through them to close out our time together when we talk about one another and life together in marks of family. But I think there are stages that we have to and do go through to build a healthy community, okay? The first stage, we see this in John chapter one. We see conversation. Cliche conversation. A few of John the Baptist's disciples are attracted to Jesus because they've heard about him from John the Baptist. And they're like, oh, there he is. And they just start having a conversation. Where are you staying? Conversation. We're good at this at Emmaus. I mean, seriously, it takes an extra 20 minutes for people to come from the lobby into the sanctuary. Why? Because of conversation. Conversing. We do this well, do we not? I think we do. Talking hanging out, cliche stuff, right? Just sharing the facts. But then the next stage is connection, connection. And we see this in Matthew 9 and in Mark 2, where Jesus is eating at Matthew's house. Eating together is a like byproduct of connection. When you're eating together, you're connecting. It might be shallow at first, but you're connecting. Again, we are good at this with an Emmaus. We eat together, we hang out, we do things together, we connect, man. Like, we don't just do programs. Like, we actually connect outside of house church on Sunday morning. We connect, we hang out. Come by here during the week. There will be some men playing ping pong in that community room, connecting. At some point during the week, there's going to be some moms talking about their children. There's going to be some ladies going to get their nails done together. We connect. We hang out. We're good at it. Here's the third stage. Consideration. Consideration. And I mean this in two different senses of the word. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. We take a posture of being considerate towards another. We begin to care for those in our community, for their needs. And I think we, we, we do great at this at Emmaus. You got a need that gets presented, it will, be, it will be met. People care. I've seen it happen. I think people can speak to that as a testimony. 
The second aspect of consideration comes in Luke 9, just before the transfiguration, where Jesus says, who do you say I am? Where we begin to consider another person's opinion or thoughts about our life. There's a level of consideration. And this is where it starts getting more challenging. Okay? Here's the fourth stage. It is challenge. Challenge. We see this in Matthew chapter 26 in the Last Supper. Peter and Judas's denial. Jesus is just sitting at this dinner table and he says that one of you will deny me. Can you imagine? He's sitting at the dinner table and one of those in that room is going to deny him. And he's like, one of you guys is going to betray me. Judas is like, is it me? And he goes, you have said so. What? Like so much, like so much for like a cool, like nice, intimate dinner with your friends. One of you is actually going to kill me. And I'm not talking about in like a board game. I'm talking about real life. And then we see the, the fifth stage, and that is the stage of confession. Confession. We see that in John 20 and 21. We see Thomas, who's like, I'm not going to believe it's Jesus until I see his hands. There is a level of confession. And then we see Peter eating breakfast with the disciples and Jesus, and he says to them, is, is this the Lord? Hello, Lord? Is this you? We'll change it up. Thank you, brother. Caring for another. Well done. Okay, perfect. Back to my notes. All right. Confession happens in John 20 and 21 with Thomas and Peter. Jesus says, do you love me to Peter? But these are the five stages that I saw throughout the gospel narrative. Conversation, connection, consideration, challenge, and confession. Now, all along, there is maturity and change that is happening along the way. But... In these stages, there seems to be two major doorways of a cost that we are to walk through along the way in order for continued maturity. The first cost comes between connection and consideration, and it is simply commitment. Commitment. There is a sacrifice that is made. There is a level of freedom and autonomy that is given up. Commitment is made. This is the first doorway. This is the first cost that we face. At some point at Emmaus, you may have experienced it or not, but you've got to know the first doorway into this community, really in terms of cost, is a commitment. Commitment, verbally and embodied. Now, I will say, I get leery of folks who have been a part of a mass for a couple of weeks, and they're like, man, we're committed, man. This is, this is our community. I'm like, yeah, let's hold off on that for a little bit. Let's, wait till you see my brokenness. You're going to get disenchanted with me at some point. And with another person. Someone's going to annoy you. Something's going to happen on a Sunday morning. You just didn't like that. You're like, oh, that teaching wasn't very good. I beg to differ, okay? 
I didn't like the music today. Like, we're going to face these moments of these shallow preferences. But I'm telling you, what will keep people in this community is relational connection. You will get past the preferences if you can move past commitment. Commitment is the first cost in any sort of healthy family. You have to give up a level of freedom and autonomy. The second doorway or the second cost is consent. And it comes after consideration and before challenge and confession. Meaning that the cost is that people actually see your pain and brokenness and you allow people to challenge you. If you don't allow someone to call you out, you haven't made to a place of consent yet. Maybe you've committed, but you haven't made it to a place of consent where you're saying, here I am, here you are, let's be raw and honest with each other because we love one another. We don't brush things under the rug. We don't go to a friend and go, oh my gosh, did you know that they're doing that? Do you know that he's doing that? She acted that way. Can you believe? You go and talk to the person. Now, listen, consent, I think, honestly requires some sort of like verbal conversation. Do you give me consent to speak into your life? And here's the thing with me. If I give, if you give me consent, I give you consent. But the cost is that people actually see your pain and your brokenness. And you allow people to challenge you, to look at you and go, get your act together. What are you doing? I was talking to Jay about this this past week, but I think in our moment, at least with men, so this is just an oversimplification and total stereotypes, so bear with me. Maybe this is with women, but I'm a man. This is from my anecdotal experience. There are really like two types of people-ish. Simplification. One group of people who are probably pretty artistic, open, vulnerable, and some would say emotional, but we're all emotional, okay? So I don't like that at all. We all are emotional, okay? And, and very um, sensitive, okay? But the other side are, are, are men or people who are very um, closed off, pretty hard, but have a level of resilience and grit, Okay? In that, I also know that there are people who have never been on a team of any sort. And there are people who have been on teams their whole life. This person over here can't stand a call out. They've never been on a team before. Never won a championship, ever. You've done cool things, creative things, love it. It's awesome. Never been on a team before, though. Someone calls you out, you, like, run away. This side over here is like, call me out. That's fine. I'm going to call you out too. I've been through. I've been through it. Right? I've got fights at practice. We've done the thing. I've been on a team. Okay? This person is usually really good at being a caring person and being open and having awareness of how they're feeling. But sometimes they don't like call outs or accountability. It's more just like, let's just talk about our struggle. No, you need a coach to look at you and go, what are you doing? This person 
sometimes has no clue how they're doing. Um, right? They're just like, uh. Right? It's like the dumb jock stereotype. Like, you need to open up, bro. Write some poetry. Go out in nature. Like, seriously. Listen to Sabani Vare. I don't know. Like, soften up. Seriously. But we, we, we need both of these worlds to collide. I, I, was, I, called, I, I talked to Jay this week, and we are talking, and I call it the, the David man. David was a warrior poet. We need these two worlds to collide. You ain't never been on a team before? I'm coming for you. And you're a man that doesn't know how to open up? I'm coming for you. I just want y'all to know. I am a very sensitive person. I cry. All right? I will cry. I watched the other night by myself, Lyle Lyle Crocodile. (laughs) By myself. Not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. And I've been on a team before and gotten chewed out. And I've jumped other players. I know how it goes. Maybe that just means I'm an emotional wreck. I don't know. But I believe those two worlds colliding produces healthy family. Some of you need to be jumped. (laughs) In a good way, right? And some of you, you need to open up, dude. You need to know how to have a conversation. You need to go up to someone and say, hey, how are you? Stop talking about the weather. We know what the weather is like outside. How are you? How are you feeling? Like, we need these two spaces, okay? All right? So, if you're offended, the good news is the other person in the group is also offended. So, we're all equally offended. All right, perfect. We need to get to a place of consent, I believe, as a people. We need to allow people to challenge us. And in Jesus' upper room discourse, his final teaching, he gives the very first one another command in the New Testament and the one that binds all of them in the New Testament. It's in John 13, 34 through 35, and it simply reads this. A new command, which new does not mean new as in uh, newly invented, but a fresh command. I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Loving one another requires, I think, commitment and consent. Commitment to the good and the joy of each other and consent for someone to love you and consent to let someone get close enough. Jesus says quite literally, this is the way the world will know you are my students. This is the primary evangelistic tool that we have. The most persuasive sermon that we can give is how we live together in love. How we live together in love. And you can't fully love the other if you haven't given consent and haven't committed. You'll be searching for it your whole life long. Commitment, friends, is more important than chemistry. At some point, that chemistry is going to be off. Are you committed? Can you take the relationship and put it above the problem? And preference will always undermine commitment. On top of that, here's another thing I've noticed. People who stay the longest generally grow the most. Generally. And each of these marks that we will explore 
together are in some ways, I think, deeply countercultural and subversive. But in my estimation, they're deeply longed for by all of us. And these marks will help for us provide clarity to what it means to truly love one another. And it won't be easy. For some of you, you have experienced some of these stages. And for some of you, you haven't moved past stage two or stage three. For whatever reason. And I get for some of us, there's a mistrust because of a past relationship. I would encourage you to not let transference where you basically project your past experience with a person and project it on another get in the way of deep community. It's not going to be easy, though. It will be hard. But I would encourage all of us to take the risk. I think love requires getting so close that we're willing to be hurt. And as a person, family, and as a pastor, I've been hurt a lot in the last seven years, man. People in this community have hurt me. And I have hurt people in this community. And most of the time, it's it's not even intended. Sometimes it may be. God help us but we are going to hurt each other, often unintentionally. But I want to take a posture of humility to say, let's put the relationship above the problem and keep grinding forward because we want to be a pure witness of the person of Jesus and it requires loving one another. We don't have to be lonely, friends. But here is the dissonance and the tension that we all face. Family is the place of our deepest hurt as well as our deepest healing. The dissonance that we all face and tension in this teaching today is that family will be the place for our deepest hurts as well as our deepest healing. The great Henry Nouwen says, in community we say, life is full of gains and losses, joys and sorrows, ups and downs, but we do not have to live it alone. We want to drink our cup together and thus celebrate the truth that that the wounds of our individual lives, which seem intolerable when lived alone, become sources of healing when we live them as part of a fellowship of mutual care. Here's a man who was an academic at Harvard who decided to give up everything and move into a community of people who had mental and physical disabilities and give himself to a community. So my question for us today as we close in silence is what stage are you in within this community? What stage are you in? What temptation do you face the most? The save me temptation or the I've got it temptation? My second question is, are you willing to work? Are you willing to work? We're going to look at a handful of marks in the New Testament. Things like honoring one another, speaking truth to one another, submitting to one another, There are multiple. 
showing hospitality to another, encouraging one another. And I'm hoping that over these next few weeks that you and I will be deeply challenged and we will know and have practical skills for how to live together in community. Because if I'm honest, guys, some of us are relegating a healing into a therapist's office that can and should happen in community. And I'm one of the first ones to say, I've been there, done that. (laughs) And I love it. We all need it. But there are some things that we need to work out interpersonally for us to experience deep healing. Because the depths of our brokenness is about disconnection. And we need to reconnect together. Build trust. Build continuity. Bound by the person of Jesus. I'm going to pray together. Well, we're going to pray together. I'm going to pray for us. Thank you.